Let's turn in our Bibles tonight to Second Chronicles chapter 33. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. If you just wave to them, they'll get one into your hands and usually try to cover, cover a couple of chapters on the Sunday nights and sure is uh, helpful to be able to follow along by uh, not only listening but reading the word as well. Well, I um, stopped a little bit shy of finishing chapter 32 last week. You forgive me for that, uh, I'm sure. But as we come here now to chapter uh, 33, chapter 32 uh, finishes up the description, the historical record of one of the greatest kings that Judah ever had, southern kingdom of Judah, and that was King Hezekiah, great and godly man. And we're told in verse 32 of chapter 32, now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his goodness, indeed they are written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, and in the book of the kings of Judah and of Israel. So speaking of the book of Isaiah and also the book of Second Kings, the 29 years of his glorious reign. And so Hezekiah rested with his fathers. They buried him in the upper tombs of the sons of David, put him in a, uh, kind of the uppermost uh, burial places, the places of the highest honor. So he was buried there in the upper tombs of the sons of David, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem honored him at his death. He was worthy of it. And then Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. The encapsulation of Manasseh's life is as follows. He was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He'll reign longer than any other king of Judah ever reigned. 55 years. That's a long time. That means a lot of people were born into the world and they died and they never knew any other king but King Manasseh. And when we read about King Manasseh's life, certainly the overwhelming majority of it, you realize that was a terrible, terrible time. Uh, to be in Judah if you had any desire for righteousness. And so he reigned for 55 years and he completely wasted the length of that reign. In fact, he did worse than uh, wasted. He, uh, as we'll see it, it, here shortly, he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. He took uh, Israel will never or Judah will never recover from the wickedness that he introduces uh, into that nation. They will end up uh, as a, uh, the effect of this. They had the ability to repent as a nation and things would have been different, but they they never will. He will. But the nation never did. And uh, and they before they went into the Babylonian <clears throat> captivity. He introduced things. Remember when uh, Joshua led the children of Israel uh, into the promised land and he uh, displaced the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, Perizzites and all these ites and ites that were in the land. God had waited a, a significant period, a number of uh, several hundred years until the fullness of their sin was complete before he removed them. In other words, they were a cancer on the human condition. God knew that they were not going to repent of their sin, but the wickedness that was permeating that land and was now being exported out of Canaan into the rest of the world uh, was really a danger to the future of 
uh, human existence. And so the Lord determined that they would be he would purge them and that land would be given to the children of Israel. So it gives you an idea where God the, the wickedness is so great. And here is Manasseh, a Jewish man, a Jewish king, uh, following a, a very, very godly father. And he is going to take Judah into greater sin and more wickedness than the perverted, wicked people that preceded Judah in the land. You, you, if you ever, well, you probably don't want to. But, you know, we read about the Canaanites. We read about the sins of the Canaanites before God had them destroyed and then and then wiped them out related to the land. But if if you ever go into any kind of significant college library or online or something and you read about the practices of the Canaanites, it's just disgusting. Dogs don't live that way. Animals don't live that way. Only human beings can out-animal animals. It's just terrible. Just terrible. You, you can't talk about it, in, not only in mixed company, in any company. And now here is the king of Judah who takes Judah even lower than that. And that's what he's done. I think it's interesting to note, too, that we have a very, very wicked son following a very very godly father as a king in uh, 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 Judah. And I think it's very important again to note that uh, we are not to judge uh, children by their parents, but also we are not to judge parents by the choices of their adult children. This man had every opportunity to be a great and godly king, and the fact that he did not become that, tremendous privileges that he sinned against, a godly heritage is a great privilege, and, uh, and he is going to sin, uh, not only, he's going to sin against incredible light because of the father that he had. For, and then here's the, evil of the rain that he initiated in, in the encapsulation of the evil. He rebuilt the high places, the uh, places where idolatry was practiced, where Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. And so he raised up altars for Baal, the, uh, the Baals, and he made wooden images, and he worshipped all the hosts of heaven, and he served them. So these high points in the land, these hilltops and mountaintops, were always reserved for the idols because the highest point in the in the area, whatever the area was, felt you were the closest to God. It was above everything else. So this kind of this area was given over to the worship of, of false idols. And again, the the worship of Baal, the worship of Ash, uh, Asherah, who was uh, the wooden images were a part of the worship of her. She was the goddess of fertility. It's just orgies. Just the worst orgies. You don't, I'm not going to say the worst you could think of. You don't want to think of. None of us want to think of. It's just the worst thing. Here it is in Judah. And he takes and everything his father had torn out and destroyed in order to give the nation another start and, and to be righteous and holy. He comes in. He undoes all of the good that his father did. It's interesting. Sometimes you you will see that in, even in you know, human history that's not in the Bible. We see a child rebel against a godly heritage. You think the only consolation is, is that their mom and dad are dead. 
not to see it and to witness what they have done to their heritage. If that's you tonight, I tell you, you just need to repent. Just repent, turn back to God like Manasseh is going to do. Return to that godly heritage. And there's no worse legacy in all of the world than to have that kind of legacy. And that's what Manasseh had here. And so he reintroduced all of the idolatry that his father had removed. And he also built altars in the house of the Lord. So here he goes right into the temple itself. He builds altars to the false gods in the temple. And then, and, and this is so um, uh, grievous to the writer of Second Chronicles. He's, he's got, by the Spirit of God, he adds this commentary of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem shall be my name forever. When God allowed the children of Israel the privilege of building that temple. And then he said, I am going to be in this place. It's going to represent my presence uniquely in all of the world. Not Rio de Janeiro, not Berlin, not Moscow, not anywhere else. This place. My eye will be on this place. My presence will be in this place like nowhere else. And this guy gets in God's face in his living room. And he puts these altars, not just reintroducing it into the land, but right into the temple, right in front of God's face. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts that were outside of the house of the Lord. So he fills the temple with idolatry. He fills the courtyards of the temple with idolatry. And he also caused his sons to pass through the fire and the valley of the son of, of Hinnom. And so he reintroduced the worship of Molech back into the land. And Molech was... Uh, God, God was worshipped, again, as we've mentioned before, this image with these arms out, either of stone or something masonry that could be heated up uh, or out of metal. They would heat it until it was as hot as could be. And then, they would, and then here was the mouth of Molech like this, and they would roll their babies down into the fire in order to appease the gods or in order to buy fertility or buy prosperity from the gods. And so the sacrifice of children to the idols of the parents. And he reintroduced that uh, into the land. And not only did he reintroduce it, but he even offered his children. He practiced the practice. Not just one son. We're told plural sons. We don't know how many that he offered into the fire. I don't know how you take your baby boy and you roll him down into a flame and then you go home and eat dinner and go to sleep like you're a normal human being. But that's how, that's how, that's how a conscience can be seared. Apart from the Word of God and the human condition, apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this world, this is, where a, this is where a life can go. And so this is what he did. And he practiced soothsaying. He used witchcraft and sorcery. He consulted mediums and spiritists in order to uh, get wisdom and direction for his uh, kingdom. And he did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. So he's doing all of this in the sight of the Lord, of course. And so here is a nation that's absolutely completely demonized. 
Here's God Almighty who is there to be sought for wisdom, instruction, anything that he needs. And he takes and he makes the devil uh, himself the source of the wisdom of the nation. I mean, it's just horrifying. So the, the picture, a, a, you say, uh, listen, Damien, I'm already depressed enough uh, about uh, what's going on in the world today and all. I thought you'd perk me up a little bit. Well, we're in the wrong chapter. No, actually, we're not. We'll leave you perky before you're done. Yeah, maybe not super. Well, okay, I'm backtracking from that statement. But here's the point. The Holy Spirit is, is painting a very, very powerful before picture of this man so we can appreciate what happens to him a little bit later. So I don't want to just read over it and this and this and this and yeah, okay. And then his life has changed and okay, so big deal. Now this guy was a monster. And then... And then in verse 7, he even, you read those first two words and you think he, there's, they, what makes the writer go, he even? How could he do worse than what's already been described to us? But he did worse. He even set a carved image. A carved image is speaking of, of, of a, a carved image to uh, Asherah, again, the goddess of fertility. This would have been a, a wooden uh, image uh, carved in the image of, of uh, a sexual image. And so he set a carved image, the idol of which he made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all of the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever and will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land, which I have appointed to your fathers, only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. He takes and puts a sexual sculpture in the temple of God. It's like going into God's living room and hanging pornography on his walls. The holy, perfect, beautiful, righteous God. We're talking about a very demonic human being. This is how much he wants to insult God. This is how much he hates God. This is how much he wants to offend God. He's off the graph. He's out of control. This is what he does to God. The disrespect that he has toward God. And so Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed uh, before the children of Israel. And so he takes and, uh, and comes in and, and seduces the whole nation to very, very active in leading him into this demonic worship and into all of these, uh, these practices. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. And so the Lord was speaking to them, and the prophet Isaiah was ministering at this time. And, uh, and so it gives you an idea a little bit as you read Isaiah, what was going on in Judah at the time. The Lord was warning, judgment is coming, judgment is coming, judgment is coming. 
don't and and they yet they wouldn't heed it and tradition uh, uh, has it that the prophet Isaiah was sawn in two he was martyred for being faithful to his prophetic ministry to the Lord and tradition has it that he was martyred by none other than Manasseh and then in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 37 where it talks about the righteous who died at the hands of the unrighteous, of whom the world was not worthy. It speaks of those who were sawn in two. And Isaiah, uh, probably a reference to Isaiah. Others perhaps as well, but certainly including uh, them. And so God was trying to speak to them, trying to warn them, but they refused to listen. It's a privilege to hear God's voice. It's a privilege to be warned by Him. It's a privilege to hear the call to repent. And when there wasn't any repentance, therefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria, came into Jerusalem, and they didn't deport all of the people. They took Manasseh. They just took one man. They took the king. They took Manasseh with hooks, and they bound him with bronze fetters, and they carried him off to Babylon. Now you look at that, and, and you say, all right, you've got the Assyrians defeating Manasseh or, or taking him captive, and yet they take him to Babylon. And we know historically that the Syrian Empire was followed by the Babylonian Empire. At this point in time, he's taken to Babylon, which was kind of a state, a portion, a, a, a southern portion of the Assyrian Empire. And so it was the Assyrians that took him. And not only did they capture him, but they bound him with bronze fetters and also took him with hooks, which means that they would put a hook through a, a person's nose and then drag him wherever you want. Now, I've never had that done to me, but I assume uh, if you have a hook in my nose, uh, anywhere you pull, I'm going to follow you. And that's exactly just like an animal. He's living like an animal. So God says, you like to live like an animal? Then let's see how you like uh, not being a king and like being treated like an animal. And so the Lord is in all of this to bring this man to repentance. Now, when he was in affliction, well, the Bible says the goodness of God brings us to repentance. Most of us. <laughs> Some come from affliction. We will not ask for a show of hands. But he came by affliction. Whatever was going on. In that prison, in that province of Babylon, he was in, in, in affliction. He did not like uh, w where he was. And then in that uh, place of bondage, he then were told, implored the Lord his God, and he humbled himself greatly. Why would he need to humble himself greatly? Because he was about as... High and lifted up in pride as you could possibly be related to the Lord. And so there was a great humbling, self-humbling that was needed. But he did it before the God of his fathers. And he prayed to the Lord. So he implored the Lord. He regretted the life that he had lived now in this, uh, in this quiet condition that he's in, removed from his power and, and all. He repents and he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord uh, listened to his prayer, as God said that he would. Remember when Solomon dedicated the temple at that time, the, Solomon cried and said, and if we are ever taken captive by our enemies and into a foreign land, 
And we come to our senses and we repent of our sin and we cry out to you in that repentance. Lord, would you hear our prayers in that condition? And the Lord said he would hear their prayers. And so here is Manasseh. He takes and in this repentant condition, he cries out to the Lord and the Lord listened to him. Lord will always hear a prayer of repentance. No matter where we've been, no matter what we've done. It really is, even in the wickedness of Manasseh, you look and say, all right, God is just, there's no hope for this guy, that God doesn't have the grace for him. God, you know, you would look at him and say, God should have just fried him any, any one of a hundred ways. But God didn't do that. And it really teaches us the fact. And so often the devil will come in after we have uh, sinned against light and lived a life of wickedness or whatever it is and think, oh, that, well, God will never have anything to do with you, not after what you've done and you've seen and you've said, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not true. With repentance, the door opens of conversation with God. The Bible says that God isn't willing that any should perish but that all would come to repentance. Manasseh was on his way to perishing. And the Lord realized this guy is so, he is on such a high horse of pride. I'm going to have to knock him down, have him go into captivity alone among all of Judah and put him in prison in order to humble himself so that he will look squarely at what he's made of his life Make a decision for me. God didn't force him, but he, 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 he won't make us willing, but he, but he knows how to make the circumstances where we're willing to be willing. And so he humbled himself and he prayed to the Lord. And I'll tell you something. You know, we just assume, all right, we pray to God and he's got to always pick up the phone. It's a marvel here. He prayed to God and you would think God would say, I am not picking up that phone. Never. After what he did in my temple, after what he did in front of my people, to me, my reputation, ah, God is not like me. And so he received, we're told, the Lord received his entreaty, his prayer. He heard his supplication and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. And so here he is. And... Uh, God confronts Manasseh with his absolute sovereignty that he is God. You're worshiping all of these idols and they can't keep you from being brought into captivity by me or me judging you. And, and so it, 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 and the Lord gives him a second chance. And this man is just really beautiful. This man, given a second chance by God in life, is going to use every waking and breathing moment of his life to advance the God and the righteousness of the one that he had offended. He does an absolute 180 degree turn in his life. And so he returns to Jerusalem. And after this, he built a wall outside of the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley as far as the entrance of the fish gate. And it enclosed Ophel, and he raised it to a very great height. And then he put military captains in all of the fortified cities of 
Judah. And so he builds this addition to the wall of Jerusalem, about, 170, uh, about 70, 750 feet is added to their wall. He then beefs up the military. Clearly he's concerned about being attacked by the Assyrians. And then more significantly in verse 15, he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord. He said, I've got to get in there and get that out of there. And all this stuff that I've put out and, and all of the idolatry that I've encouraged, all of the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he cast them out of the city. So he destroys all of the idolatry that he had been uh, encouraging. And he also repaired the altar of the Lord and he sacrificed peace offering and thank offerings on it. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed on the high places, but only to the Lord their God. And so this guy made a complete uh, turnaround related to his life. And the people had to be amazed at what had happened with him. You take in the to me, the parallel passage in in the Bible, in the New Testament, is the salvation of the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus. Mass is in the same category. If you would asked any hundred people or a hundred thousand people that were alive in that day who is the single last person living on the face of this planet that will ever turn to God they would have answered Manasseh who is the single last person that will ever become a Christian and follow Jesus they would have answered Saul of Tarsus and yet they both end up being saved and end up doing Wonderful things for the Lord. And it really speaks to us of the, of the fact that if we sit in this room tonight and we've just wandered into this church and you wonder what in the world is this? It's a church. Maybe there's hope for my life. And you don't even know that God offers hope. You don't even know anything about God. All you know is you've been living the way you shouldn't be living. And is there hope for you? And God comes in and he lets you know there is hope for you. There's hope for anyone. As the old saying goes, there are none that are so good that they don't need to be saved, none so bad that they can't be saved. That was true of Manasseh here. And so it gives, uh, it gives sinners hope of salvation. But it also gives those of us who know the Lord hope. It gives us hope in praying for people, Manasseh's in our life. Children that have turned against a godly heritage and against light. Or living lives that none of us dreamed would be possible for our children or for others that we're praying for. And to realize no one, as long as they're still breathing and have life in them, no one is beyond the reach of God and a miracle of God. We never know what God is doing in an individual heart. We lay our heads down on the pillow at night. We pray for our children that aren't walking with the Lord or others that aren't walking with the Lord. And... And, you know, we hope that, you know, God is breaking through. We don't have any idea what he's doing in their lives and how he answers our prayers. Sometimes people will come up to me once in a while and they'll say, you know, I've been doing this and that and all. But my mom and my dad and my grandma, they all know the Lord. I said, you're dead. You're through. You've got a mom and a grandma praying for you every day. Give up. Come on. What are you doing? You're, it's it. You hardly have any choice in the matter. Come back to the Lord, you know, and that's that's just the way that it is. But it helps us to realize we just lift that prayer up. and We say, Lord, 
All I care about concerning their life is that you win. And whatever that takes, a hook in the nose and a trip to Babylon, whatever it takes for you to win, you do it, Lord. Because when you win, everybody wins. And so the Lord, this whole thing gives us hope uh, related to those where you just look and say, okay, it's hopeless. There's no way they'll never turn and and they'll never change. We don't know. God is... (laughs) Man, he's got a strong right arm. He wants to put you in a headlock. He can put you in a headlock. So he did with Manasseh. And so the people didn't really turn with the kind of heart that Manasseh did uh, back to the Lord. In the large part, they continued to uh, follow their their wickedness and all. And, and of course, the Lord was using Manasseh as kind of a living message to the southern kingdom of Judah. In other words, this sinful life that Manasseh was living, that you gladly followed him into, it leads to captivity. And if there's repentance in the captivity, it will lead to a restoration back into the land, which was Manasseh was living out Jewish history ahead of time, which is what was going to happen to them. But God was even using their king as a as a uh, to carry that message and just the living message of his life. Now, the rest of the acts of Manasseh, his prayer to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel. Indeed, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. Also, his prayer and how God received his entreaty and all his sin and trespass. And the sites where he built high places and set up wooden images and carved images before he was humbled. Indeed, they are written among the sayings of uh, Hosea. And so uh, Manasseh rested with his fathers. They buried him in his own house, uh, on his own property, not with the other kings because of the wickedness of uh, his uh, previously in his life. And then his son Ammon reigned in his Place. I love the story. I love the account related to Manasseh because it it gives hope um, and, and it gives hope at a time where we need hope, where the world is becoming so depraved and so uh, sin addicted and our nation is in the same category. And so it gives a great warning against that kind of thing. But it gives us great hope that God is at work in people's lives sometimes when we can't even see it. And so Ammon, his, fa- his son, followed him. He was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father Manasseh had done uh, for Ammon's sacrifice to all of the carved images which his father Manasseh had made, and he served them. And he did not humble himself before the Lord as his father Manasseh had humbled himself, but Ammon trespassed more and more. So he comes in and he becomes king. He has witnessed the transformation of his father, and he takes in all the good that his father did late in his life. He undoes all of that good, and he reintroduces idolatry back into the southern kingdom of Judah during the period uh, of his reign. You know, I, through the years, I've talked with so many um, parents, and, uh, and I know this scenario is represented in the room where... Um, some Christians come to know the Lord early in life, in their childhood, 
And then some people come to learn about the Lord and they surrender to the Lord a little bit later in life. And the kids are 16, 17, 18, 28, 38, 48. I mean, they, and the parents look and they'll say, my only regret in life is that I came to know the Lord so late. I think about how I raised my children and how differently I would raise my children today if I had only walked with the Lord back then. And it's a great regret. And God is bigger than that regret because he can take care of things. He honors our prayers. But all of that is very, very real. Ammon has no excuse for the life that he was living. If you come from a household where you were largely raised and in that home, not just not in a Christian home, but an environment of vileness, an environment of wickedness. And then your parent or your parents come to know the Lord later in life and you get to see the before and the after. What Ammon teaches us is that we're not allowed to take their before life and use that as an excuse to continue in the sin that marked the former part of their life. But to look at the miracle that has happened in their life, grab a hold of that and to say, I want to follow them in that kind of a heritage. And so often people will use that. They'll look at and where the parent comes to know the Lord later and they'll look and say, this is what I was raised in. This is what I'm a victim of all of this and everything. And they use it as an excuse. But your parent has two testimonies. They, they were what they were. That's what they were. That's all there is to that. But that's not what they remained. They became something different. And the lesson of their life is what they've now become and to follow them now into that new life. But Ammon is going to waste all of that, as so many do. And then his wickedness and his increasing of his trespasses more and more. His servants conspired against him and they killed him in his own house. He was assassinated. But apparently that wasn't a terribly popular move among the people of the land. They liked the reintroduction of all of the idolatry. And so they executed all those who had conspired against King Ammon. And then the people of the land made his son uh, Josiah king in his place. And with Josiah, we have the introduction of the last of eight great, great kings in the history of uh, Judah. And so Josiah was eight years old when he became king. So obviously he has some godly mentorship around him. He's not making major world decisions at this time. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And he walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Josiah is going to walk with the Lord faithfully all the days of his life. Not going to move to the left or to the right. He's going to be completely faithful. And one of the things I like about Josiah and this introduction related to him is this. He looks at his father and there's nothing to emulate or to imitate in his father. His father is no hero, no hero material at all. His father has no repentance, no turning is what he was. 
And yet, here is a man who is looking in his life for an example in his life. And so he says, I don't have an example in my father. I don't have a hero in my father. So I will look someplace else for a hero or a model. Of course, our hero is Jesus. Never fails us. The greatest example to fashion our lives after in the power of the Holy Spirit. But he looked and said, all right, who can I follow that is worthy of being an example in my life as a king of Judah? And he said, all right, I can't follow my father. I can't make my father that give him that place in my life. But I know who I can. And he made David his example. If you don't have an example in your parents, then look someplace else for an example. They're all over in the kingdom of God and among God's people and learn from them. In the eighth year of his reign, so now he's 16 years total, while he was still young, he began to seek the Lord, uh, the, the God of his father, David. And so I like that phrase, while he was still young. The younger, the better. <laughs> Absolutely. So while he was still young, he began then to seek the Lord God of his father, David, his spiritual father. And in the twelfth year, so he's 20 years old, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, all the things that his father had introduced into the land, reintroduced the wooden images, the carved images, the molded images. And then listen to the strength of this uh, language that's used here to speak of his cleansing of the land of idolatry. They broke down. The altars of the Baals in his presence and the incense altars which were above them. He cut down and the wooden images, the carved images, the molded images. He broke in pieces and he made dust of them and he scattered the dust on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. And so he begins to rid all of the land of the idolatry. And we know from Second Kings that in accordance with the law of Moses, he slew uh, and capital punishment. He killed all of the priests of these uh, of, the, uh, of these idolatrous temples and altars because they were leading the nation of Israel, leading God's people into idolatry as a capital crime. And so he killed them. They were buried. And then he took all of the dust and the remains of the idols and the altars that they were worshiping, and he scattered them on their graves. Dead followers, dead gods, and he just made an example out of the whole thing. And he also burned the bones of the priests on their altars, and he cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so he did in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and all around with axes. And so he then took this cleansing of public areas from idolatry. He took this uh, campaign into the northern kingdom of Israel, even though Assyria was ruling there at the time, and uh, went up into the area of Bethel, and uh, where this, we're told in Second Kings, where uh, one of the great golden calves that were worshipped, uh, that uh, Jeroboam introduced into uh, Israel's history, and he went uh, to that, he tore down the altar, he destroyed it, he ground all of that up, and then he dug up the, uh, the when, when you would have an altar like that, all of the priests, when they would die, they would want to be buried near the altar. 
And so he dug up the bones of these priests and he had their bones burned on the altar before he destroyed it. It was the ultimate desecration of a holy site was to do that. And you remember when uh, way back in, uh, in uh, Jeroboam's time, uh, way back in, in 1 Kings or 2 Kings in there where he, um, the prophet came to him, a young prophet, while he was offering sacrifices and incense and all at the altar there in Bethel. And the young prophet began to denounce the idolatry that Jeroboam was involved in. And he stretched out his arm and he ordered him to be arrested and his arm paralyzed right into place right there. And then the young prophet continued his prophecy uh, to Jeroboam and spoke of a king who would come by the name of Josiah, who would ultimately destroy this altar. He named him by name. And then the prophet, having given his prophecy, was to leave the city immediately. He left, but he was lured back into the city, you might remember, by an older prophet, and was ultimately killed by a lion. But what he had, what he had prophesied would occur fulfilled here in this cleansing uh, by Josiah. And when he had broken down the altars and the wooden images and beaten the carved images into powder, and he cut down all the incense altars throughout all of the land, when he had done that in Israel and in Judah, he returned to Jerusalem. So he personally stayed engaged in all of this. Now, it might be that he was personally involved in all of this just because of his zeal for God. He wanted to make sure that this was done in a thorough fashion, or it might be that here is and what we do have in Judah is we in Josiah is we have a very godly king, but the people are not godly. They they do not have the zeal for God that Josiah does. And and so he might have had to go and personally be involved to assure that all of this would be done because uh, the people wouldn't do it. If you want to get a picture of what it was like uh, in Josiah's uh, reign, uh, Jeremiah began his prophetic ministry, I think, in the 21st year of of his reign. And so you begin to read the book of Jeremiah, where I am in my devotional life right now. Oh, man. Then I pop over into the New Testament for hope. But I mean, this, the, the warnings, the warnings, the warnings, the warnings, and all of this religious veneer that they were engaged in, but the wickedness of the people. But they thought as long as this temple is around, as long as we're offering sacrifices, as long as we're going to temple, it doesn't matter what we do with our private lives. And Jeremiah, among others, was, were trying to warn them uh, that it doesn't work that way. And so he, in his great zeal for the Lord, takes and, and, and makes sure that all of this is destroyed within the land and even up into Israel. And then in the 18th year, so this puts him at the age of 26. It's fascinating because in verse 1, you've got 8 years old. Uh, in verse uh, 3, he is 16. And then he is 20 years old. And then now we have him here at 26 years of age. And the Lord doesn't do that for everyone where he's giving us his age all the way through in this progression. And the Lord gives us the ages of Josiah surely to encourage us. And certainly those of us who are younger in the room in, in using 
uh, youth and using that time of life as an opportunity to make a stand for God, make a difference for God. So it's an encouragement to that, not despising, allowing anyone to despise your youth. I, I, years ago, I could say our youth, but now I have to say your youth. So in the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the temple, he sent Shaphan, the son of uh, Azaliah, uh, Masai, the uh, governor of the city, and Joah, the son of uh, Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. And so now, 26, he wants the temple to be repaired. It had obviously been uh, tremendous damage done to it and, and neglect in the reign of Manasseh and also Ammon, his father and his grandfather. So he wants to give the temple its, its due attention. And they came to Hilkiah, the high priest, and they delivered the money that was brought into the house of God for the purpose of the repair. It was free will offerings that the people gave for that purpose which the Levites who kept the doors had gathered from the hand of Manasseh and Ephraim and from all of the remnant of Israel, from all Judah and Benjamin, and which they had brought back to Jerusalem. And then they put it into the hands of the foreman who had oversight of the house of the Lord. They gave it then to the workmen who worked in the house of the Lord to repair and to restore the house. They then gave it to the craftsmen and the builders, to buy hewn stone and timber for beams, and to floor the houses which the kings of Judah had destroyed. And so the money was working its way down through a, a, a structure of accountability, and the men did the work faithfully. Their overseers uh, are listed there. And then it's interesting at the end of verse 12, others of the Levites, all of whom were skillful with, uh, with instruments of music, were over the burden bearers and were overseers of all uh, who did work of, in any kind of the service. And some of the Levites were scribes, officers and uh, gatekeepers. So some of the musicians, the Levites, who were part of the worship at the temple, uh, they were uh, given an oversight capacity in the construction, uh, uh, reconstruction and remodeling uh, of the temple. I'd probably I'd give 10 bucks to see a picture of watching a bunch of construction people uh, receive orders um, uh, from a guitar player and uh, uh, a harpist. Um, but actually, probably the, what they were doing in this was, again, that artistic side. So this wasn't just about, you know, getting the walls up and getting chips and Mars and floors replaced, but also making sure that it had a, a, an expression of the heart and, and that kind of beauty as well. And so uh, it takes all kinds of different uh, people to express uh, these things related to the Lord. Now, when they had brought out the money that was brought uh, to, uh, they brought it into the house of the Lord. Hilkiah the priest, he found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. So they're redoing and, and uh, restoring and repairing the temple, and they found uh, uh, the book of Moses there, the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Probably Manasseh and Ammon had done everything just to get rid of I mean, if all the other things they had done, probably get rid of every copy of the scrolls of the Bible. And yet God had preserved it 
Someone had hidden it away in that temple. And then when they were doing the restoration, they found it. And so then Hilkiah, he answered and he said to Shaphan the scribe, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah then gave the book to Shaphan. And so Shaphan then carried the book to the king, bringing the king word, saying all that was committed to your servants, they are doing. The project is going great down there at the temple. And they have gathered the money that was found in the house of the Lord, and they have delivered it into the hands of the overseers and the workmen. And then Shaphan, the scribe, told the king, saying, by the way, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And so Shaphan uh, opened it up and he began to read this book uh, to the king. And as he's reading this book of the law of Moses to the king, when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And he did this as just an expression of his grief. In the Old Testament, when they would tear their clothes, it was to represent that their heart was being torn by what it was that they were hearing. And so his reaction is immediately a physical reaction here. He tears his clothes because he's very alarmed about what it is that he is hearing. Now imagine you put yourself, and we've studied all the way from Genesis to Second Chronicles, and imagine as they take out the law of Moses, maybe beginning in Genesis, maybe beginning in the book of Deuteronomy and where it, the Deuteronomy book of Deuteronomy lays out it, the whole theme of it is obedience. And it lays out God speaking about how he would bless them if they would obey him and how they would bring uh, the cursedness of of living a life of disobedience. It wasn't even that God would actively curse them, though he would do that. But that a life of disobedience to God's word carries its own curse. It's a terrible life to live. The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. And so he begins to read this law of Moses. And as the word of God is, 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 is being read and he's listening to what God said, the nation must never become, because if it ever becomes this, then this is what I'm going to do to it. I'm going to judge it and I'm going to take it into captivity. I'm going to remove men, women and children from this land and give it to somebody else. And Josiah looks out his window of his palace. And what he's hearing read on the judgment side of the book of Deuteronomy. Is the Judah that he is reigning over. And for the first time, he realizes the danger that that nation is in. Fascinating thing about Josiah is he does all of his reforms up to this point, not under the weight of the law of Moses. He'd never read a copy yet. This is his first exposure to it. He did everything that he had done up to that point in attempting to follow the example of what he knew historically about David. But now, all of a sudden, here he hears the word of God, the standard of, of the word of God. And as he listens to that, I mean, one line after another, his heart had to absolutely uh, sink in terms of the judgment that they were ripe for. It's interesting, the effect of the word of God in the world today and even among God's people, but certainly in the world today. And here's Josiah and all of his powerful men and the whole southern kingdom of Judah. 
And they thought that they were A-OK, absolutely doing fine in the eyes of God until they got exposed to the Word of God and the righteous standard that is described in the Word of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. It is when the Bible is read and when the Bible is known and when the standard, the holy standard of the Bible is put up against an individual human life or against a nation or against a society or a culture that we then know how good or how bad that culture or that individual is because it brings the knowledge of sin. Again, in the book of Romans, chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, Paul wrote again, and he said, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. And once a person is exposed to the standard of God's word, certainly concerning salvation, then we realize, all right, there's no hope for me. If the standard is perfection, there's no way I can get into heaven because I've already been imperfect. So what, Lord, God, is there another way for a sinner like me to get into heaven? And it drives us to Christ. But the word of God brings that realization into our lives. It's interesting that the uh, rapid expansion of ungodliness in Judah under both Manasseh and Ammon that it occurred at a time in which the word of God was hidden away, removed from the public square of public life, hidden away in the temple, and uh, as a result, re- removing the rebuke of the word of God and the warning concerning uh, sin and all from the culture. And we see the same pattern in our nation today. Over the past 60 years, it's really, really accelerated And we see it before our own eyes to the degree that the Bible, the Ten Commandments, the Bible in whatever form has just been systematically, systematically and purposely removed from the public life of this nation because there's the realization that that sets a standard that condemns the sinful direction that we want to go in. And so rather than repent, we will remove the standard. And you remove that standard and the influence of the word of God from any people or from any nation. And then what you're going to have is wickedness and ungodliness growing exponentially. And that is exactly what we see in the nation today. You think about how many people were talking about it. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. I mean, a guy like me even talks about it tonight. Their eyes glaze over and I say, oh, no, he's going to go into this again. But how many people warned way back when? You take God out of those schools and you're going to have problems you can't even dream of. You remove the Bible from here and from there and there, and you take the Ten Commandments out of the courthouses of this land. You remove any kind of positive uh, declaration of the Word of God from the public square and discourse, and you're going to end up with a nation that is going to spiral down. Ha, ha, ha! 
Oh, these Christians kill me. This whole slippery slope argument that they always give. It's ridiculous to think that we don't have the ability to exhibit a little bit of self-control related to these things. And then here we are where we are. And you look at it and you say, who, who were the wise and who were the fools in the whole argument? And we're in the middle of the same, the crazy experiment that is still absolutely plunging in the wrong direction. Because it is true. The Word of God and the Word of God alone is a mirror that speaks to us of what we really are in the eyes of God and alarms, alerts a nation, a society, a culture, even Christians to the direction that they're going in. You remove that and even someone like Josiah doesn't understand how bad things are. You see what happens and when that Bible gets removed, then it's demonic what has happened in our nation in the last few decades. But it's biblical. It's as old as, as the Bible, as old as 3,000 years in terms of what we're looking at uh, here. And so here he is. He's alarmed over the whole condition uh, of, of everything. And so he tears his clothes. That's his immediate reaction. And then his second reaction is better still. Then the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the scribe, and Asaiah, the servant of the king. Very, very high uh, people in government. Speaks about how important this issue is to him. And he sent them saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in the book. He said, go find someone who knows this God in this way and speaks for God because I want to know whether there's any hope for us. And so Hilkiah and those that the king had appointed, they went to Huldah, the prophetess. The wife, she's the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokath, uh, the son of Hashra. He was a keeper of the wardrobe. You talk about kind of an obscure position. He was a tailor. He either made the robes for the king or he made the robes for the priests. Probably a godly man. His wife certainly, we know, was godly. They knew right where to go. You've got a, you want a word from God? You want to know the mind of God? We know right where the prophetess is. It's Huldah. How wonderful to be known in this world as someone that you can come to to hear the voice of God through. Someone that knows God, loves God, and can point you to him. And this is the reputation that she had even in the wickedness of things prior to Josiah. And so she answered them. Well, she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, uh, which was a, kind of a suburb of Jerusalem at that time. And so they told her everything that was going on to that effect. And then she answered them and she said, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me. You go tell the king. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants, all of the curses that are written in the book, which they have read, 
before the king of Judah. It's all coming. That judgment is coming. And here's the reason why. Because they have forsaken me, human responsibility, and burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. And therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and it will not be quenched. Now, this fascinates me. Maybe not you, but it does me. And such is your portion in life as you attend this church. Their ignorance of the word of God was a deliberate ignorance of the word of God. Their ignorance of the word of God did not change the fact that calamity was coming. What God has written in his word is going to occur in human history. Whether a person takes the time to read it or not, or whether a person believes it or doesn't believe it, doesn't make any difference. God's judgment is coming upon the earth. And so here they are out of sight, out of mind. We don't believe it. We don't, all that doesn't change anything. God spoke to the prophetess. It's coming because God had warned and he keeps his word. But praise the Lord for that word in the Bible. But for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord in this manner, you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants and you humbled yourself before me and you tore your clothes and you wept before me. I saw also have heard you, says the Lord. You know what's going to save Josiah? Verse 27. His personal response to the word of God. And it's good to look at verse 27. I don't have any intent to just like lay the lashes or be heavy or something like that. All this is heavy enough, especially in the world that we live in today, in the nation that we live in today. But when we read God's word. And if we're confronted with some gulf, large or small, some distance between the standard of God's word and what he commands and the life that I'm actually living. And God is saying the only response that's worthy of that gulf is humility and brokenness and a willingness to turn and make things right. You and I cannot change how this world treats God or how it treats his word, or how it responds to God's word. They are responsible for that. All we're responsible for is what is our heart attitude and response to the word of God when we read it, when there is a distance between the life that I'm living and what the Bible describes as the life that I should be living. That's all that I have control over. It's all that you have control over. And it's wonderful to realize, as we're going to see here in just a moment, that the judgment that was going to be meted out upon the others was not going to be something that Josiah would live uh, to see. In other words, God differentiated between Josiah and everyone else. 
He recognized the difference. This man views my word in this way. This is the nation that he lives in, and I'm going to deal with his life in a different way as a result. And so he does with our lives as well. And he said, surely I will gather you, hold it did to him in the name of the Lord. Surely I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all of the calamity which I will bring on this place and its inhabitants. And so they brought back word to the king. Nebuchadnezzar would invade the land of Judah. He would conquer it three times as the king of Babylon and his first invasion of Babylon and deporting the people and defeating them, taking them captive would occur four years after the death of Josiah just as God had promised he would not see that in his lifetime. And then the king sent and he gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests, the Levites, all the people, great and small. He called them together for an assembly and he read in their hearing All of the books, words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the house of the Lord. I love this about this guy. He didn't look and say, "Okay, at least I'm not going to fall in the middle of this judgment. Everybody else is on their own. He thought to himself. I had an opportunity to hear the word of God and respond individually and personally to that word and the privilege and the opportunity that I had, I want everybody else to have. I can't control what they do with it, but everybody has a right to hear what God has to say. And so he orders the law of Moses to be read to the entire nation that would come and listen. And then after the reading of it, the king stood in his place. He made a covenant before the Lord kind of a contract with God, a commitment uh, to the Lord, to follow the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart and all of his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in the book. And so he makes this personal covenant to follow the Lord fully, and he makes that uh, on his own behalf. And then he made, you can only take that so far, he made all those who were present in Jerusalem And Benjamin also to make a stand, the people uh, to make that same covenant. Their heart wasn't in it. He was really just kind of one guy and a small remnant at this point that were really serious about God. And so they they went through the motions and the lip service. And so the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And thus Josiah removed all the abominations from all the country that belonged to the children of Israel and made all who were present in Israel diligently serve the Lord their God All his days they did not depart from following the Lord God of their fathers. So he makes this covenant with the Lord. People make a personal covenant to follow God. And then he purges or removes the abominations from the land once again. You say, well, what happened? I mean, I thought he already did a sweep through and cleaned out all of the idolatry. What's this phase two? In his first phase, he wiped out all public idolatry. In the second phase, this was private, this was household, this was personal. And he made sure that all of that was removed 
from the land as well. And so he's doing everything that he could possibly do uh, to turn the nation around. It won't be enough because the people don't share his heart for God, as we're going to see and finish the book up uh, next week. And so a beautiful example here, Manasseh tonight, and uh, how a life can be changed and be and turned. And I just, you know, I... People's testimonies are all so different. Some people come to know the Lord young, some later, some raised in the things of God, and they remain faithful, and then others, and all of this diversity. But, but the thing that you respect about Manasseh is that when he was given a second chance, he used it fully, and he was the real deal. It wasn't just words. His whole life changed. And that's one of the greatest miracles that you witness. It's one of the greatest things about being a part of the body of Christ and knowing people. You say, man, I knew that person when. Karen and I, we moved here from Napa. I think I was 30 years old. And so we moved over here. So I didn't go to school with anybody over here. I didn't grow up with anybody over here. They're all over there. And so people come into this church sometimes on a Sunday morning or night and others that have grown up in the, city, in the town and they knew them when. Look who's in church. And they look to make sure that the concrete and the steel is all holding so the thing isn't going to collapse on. This is the last person I thought I'd ever see in church after what they've lived. And then to watch that life change Watch the beauty of that life be lived for the rest of their life for the Lord. It's just the greatest, greatest testimony. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for the lessons that we've looked at tonight. And Lord, sometimes we want to come to church and we want to escape the trends of the world around us as we see the same mistakes being made today as were made in Israel and Judah. And as your people to know that all of this has consequences. So then to come in, Lord, and you know our hearts and you know where we are. And then to kind of have the headlines be something that just pulls up in our minds and the moral and spiritual direction of the world and our country and to see that we're on that same track. And it breaks our heart, Lord. And it's heavy on our heart. But it's in your book. And it's supposed to do a work in us. And Lord, we pray that as we've studied it tonight, that it would do that work. And we thank you, Lord, that when you look at even an entire nation like Judah, you were quick to spot those who responded to you in your way, in a way that was different from the culture and the wickedness of the age, and give them different promises. And we thank you, Lord, for that truth. We thank you that you don't deal in a spiritual sense with an entire nation as one.
but you spot the difference. And we pray for this coming week that lays out ahead of us, that you give us the grace to live a different kind of life for you in this world, that all that is under our oversight and where we have kind of influence, Lord, that it would be marked by your righteousness and that it would be beautiful and holy and different in this world and that it would please you, Lord, and that it would be used by you to bring people to you. We thank you, Lord, tonight, even as we began, for the privilege of being able to live a holy and a Christ-like life. It is the thrill of our life. It is the joy of our life. Thank you for your word, the mirror that it is, the strength and the nutrition that it is, Lord. Thank you for all that it does in our life. We thank you for the life that you have led us into. And Lord, we give you finally just praise tonight in each one of our hearts for our testimony, for all that you broke through, when you did it, how you did it, just like with Manasseh, for us to become humbled and to look to you and to cry out to you, Lord, and the great miracle that you have done in our life since. Thank you for that miracle. Thank you for your grace, Lord. And we thank you tonight in Jesus' name.